At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. In Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The beauty and power of song weaves throughout today's show. Later this hour, director Christine McIntyre tells us about the new Atlanta opera production of Mozart's Don Giovanni. Plus, local comedian Joe Smith talks about his work in our new series, Speaking of Comedy. First, on City Lights, we believe the arts provide a meaningful lens to view the world and that teaching is an art unto itself. Our new monthly series, The Art of Teaching, spotlights Georgia educators whose dedication and creative approach have a lasting impact on students, often inspiring them to turn their passions into professions. To inaugurate this series, we chose Professor David Morrow, conductor of the Morehouse College Glee Club and chair of the Department of Music at Morehouse. He joins me now via Zoom. Dr. Morrow, welcome to City Lights. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. Now, you direct a famous ensemble from an illustrious institution, which you attended as well. What brought you to Morehouse to pursue your bachelor's degree? Well, it's a very interesting story. My older brother, he's three years older than I am, went to Morehouse, and he was also a music major. He is a composer. And so we had grown up together in Rochester, New York, and I went to the same elementary school, junior high school and high school as my brother. And I decided that in college, I was going to make the break and go somewhere else. Ah. He saw that I was applying somewhere else, took those applications, handed me the Morehouse application and said, fill this out and we'll turn this in. (laughs) And the rest is history. (laughs) Oh, to be the younger sibling. I read that you 
graduated as the valedictorian of your class from Morehouse in 1980. And then just one year later, you earned your master's of music from the University of Michigan and later a doctorate from the University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music. Why did you want to teach at Morehouse after receiving your master's? Well, being very honest about it, that was not necessarily on my radar. Really? Uh, Dr. Wendell Whalum, who was the director and my predecessor and my mentor, was very vibrant. And I had no thought that he would not be at Morehouse College anytime soon, retiring or any other way. And so I was looking into other kinds of opportunities. I certainly graduated from Morehouse valedictorian. However, uh, that was not my thought. I was just doing the best I could and doing my work and I, it, it paid off, thankfully. I did my master's degree at the University of Michigan and happened to be teaching as a substitute teacher in Rochester, New York. Um, again, uh, just a substitute choral teacher at a high school there. And Dr. Whalem called me and said, what are you doing? And it had been sort of a, a not so great day. I was teaching some courses that I had to stay two chapters ahead of them in the book. Didn't know how to play the guitar. was learning with them, but staying ahead of them, things like that. And so I told him, I'm just resting right now. It's been an interesting day. He said, no, what are you doing? And so I told him that I was a substitute teacher. He was interested in a, an assistant director of the Glee Club who was a faculty member and thought of me. And so I got to work as a faculty member and assistant director of the Morehouse College Glee Club for six years with Dr. Wendell Whalum. And when he passed away in 1987, I became the director. Now, Dr. Wendell Whalum was legendary in addition to being an esteemed conductor, he was also an arranger of music. What was it like taking on the role of your mentor after he passed away? It was quite a challenge. And while sad about his death, I felt very prepared. He was as as giving to me as a teacher, as he was my professor when I was a student there. He included me, showed me some things that, you know, he didn't show me as a student because it wasn't time yet. It was wonderful to think of the legacy and what he brought to the table as the Glee Club director and what he brought to the table from his predecessor, who was the first official director of the Glee Club, Kemper Harold. And so I'm the third director and it's it was a, a thing where I had to think of continuing the legacy and, and knowing what it is, figuring out what might be new and make sense so that somebody can still recognize the legacy. And so that's what I strove for right off the bat, trying to make sure that these young people who were in the Glee Club under Dr. Wendell Whalem could learn to trust me as their director, even though I had been there with them 
previous years as assistant director. So it's it's uh, it was quite a challenge, but one that I felt so very well prepared to do and was honored to be able to make happen. How fortunate for both you and the students. Speaking of legacy, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a Morehouse man and a Morehouse College Glee Club member. In what ways is the Glee Club a part of his legacy? Well, there, there are many ways that can happen, not the least of which is the fact that the Morehouse College Glee Club sang for Dr. King's funeral that was held at Morehouse College. Uh, many people know that there were two, one at Ebenezer Baptist Church, and then later at Morehouse College the same day. And the Glee Club sang for, for his funeral there. He was only in the Glee Club, I'm told, a very short time. But the kinds of songs that were sung during the civil rights movement were developed from the spirituals that African-Americans or enslaved Americans sang during that time. And they developed into the songs that were during, sung during the civil rights movement. And so that legacy continues on, that music continues on as we continue to to look at how things are happening uh, all over the world and, and the legacy of peace that he tried to instill, meaning Dr. King tried to instill, the legacy of, of love that he tried to instill. All of these things are in our music. And so it's very well intertwined. Was Dr. King a tenor or a baritone or a bass? I was told a baritone, but I'm not sure I think he, I was told that he was a baritone in the, in the group. Would you talk about the historical connection between HBCUs and those Negro spirituals? Well, in terms of that kind of, especially in the choral world, we look to Fisk University and the Fisk Jubilee Singers, who were the ones who, in, in, in 1871, went on a world tour. And the result is them being able to take music that was created among enslaved Africans and, and developed into an African-American art form and taking it from the oral tradition, folk tradition, into a concert tradition. And so Fisk Jubilee Singers sets it up for everybody else that comes after. We look at the fact that Fisk University, for example, was founded in 1865, Morehouse in 1867. Just two years later, all of our HBCUs had choirs of some sort that were singing arrangements of these spirituals that were done at the folk level. And so you have all of this legacy through John W. Work at Fisk, through Wendell Whalum at Morehouse, and those connections, I can name many, many, many other schools, Dawson at Tuskegee, these people who championed this music, and it became a music that was expected to be sung by HBCU choirs, but also expected to be developed into other styles of music as well. Hmm. And I wonder how you 
balance, including those beloved spirituals, beloved by so many concert goers, music lovers, and also wanting to choose selections for your students of new music and other types of music. How do you go about putting your programs together? Well, it's been my joy to keep the legacy going, but as you say, try to include newer things. I always tell students, if you come to a school and through a school, knowing what you knew from the beginning, in other words, not ever having learned anything else new or only doing what you already know, then we've sort of taken your money and taken your time and not taken you anywhere. And so we try to include other kinds of music. I am a singer myself and I love singing. So as a result, I try to do music that choirs can sing actually. And so we have all of that happening. There, there are so many things as we study the spiritual, for example, a, a favorite uh, form of call, uh, is call and response. Well, that's seen in so many other kinds of music from the blues licks that a guitarist plays with himself singing, just calling and responding there. Even in gospel styles, you have call response between solos and the choir or soloists and the instrumentalists. Uh, so all of those things I like to blend together so that they see while this is new, it also attaches itself to something old. And so as a result, we're singing a variety of kinds of music. We even go back to West Africa in terms of the kinds of styles of music that were traditionally done there and see how we make that segue into early African-American music. And then also looking at even more contemporary styles, especially these days when uh, social justice issues are so important, there are many pieces of music that fit in that category as well. And it makes sense to do those in, in those various styles too. So you are in your role of educator just in the music you present for concert goers as well. Very thoughtful programming. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with Professor David Morrow, conductor of the Morehouse College Glee Club. I'm curious, the television show Glee had phenomenal popularity. Did that show any kind of uptick in class attendance for you after that TV show came out? Well, yes and no. The program Glee is a wonderful coming of age program in terms of the development of young people in their lives. In terms of music, Glee ends up being a, a misnomer in a way in that the music that they sang was really show choir music and not really Glee. Right. But Glee 
was a little bit, for lack of a better term, more attractive, I'll say, for programming and for um, marketing for that particular show. So it was very interesting as I sing classical music with the Glee Club at Morehouse, and we sing arrangements of spirituals and some gospel songs or whatever, we very often would be asked, are y'all a real Glee Club or, <laughs> or, or not? Because you don't sing what they sing on TV. So that was always the challenge. We did have a lot of people join and they were expecting the same songs. And I would try to encourage them to hang in there with everything that we're doing and you'll get more than you bargained for. Uh, and so we got, we had some attrition. Some people said, no, that I just want to sing. I want to dance and sing and do what's on Glee, which is wonderful. And it, it, it created this huge uptick in people starting off. But there are some who hung in there and they said, I really learned a lot. I got a whole lot more of how to sing and what to sing and the different kinds of styles of music that there are out there. So it helped and didn't at the same time. <laughs> well, they, those students could take that to their Broadway auditions if they so chose. But you, you just made me wonder, what does the term glee and glee club refer to in the context of a choir? Well, a glee really is a, an English composition that comes out of the late Renaissance, early Baroque periods, where it is a secular song. And the best way to say it is that these were very often improvised songs. Some of them were uh, created with the influence of a nice mug of beer. And uh, <laughs> they would get together and sing these wonderful songs. Usually, they were male choruses. That concept comes over to the United States and attaches itself to colleges and universities. And so it ends up not being the concert choir, but the sort of the fun choir of the, not to say that the concert choir is no fun, I, I, not <laughs> at all, but this was different music. And in fact, if you look at some of the early music that was sung by male glee clubs in the United States, they took the music very seriously, singing Renaissance music, singing settings of mixed choir choruses from oratorios or other kinds of music set in TTBB format so that they could keep that kind of literature going. And it became a very serious uh, organization. It also then became the catch-all term for single-sex choirs. For example, right across the street from us, the Spelman College Glee Club is all female. And so that became the terminology for that. And so that's sort of where that legacy comes from. Oh, that's fascinating. Regarding the significance of a glee club at Morehouse, you've been quoted saying, it's more than a notion. Would you elaborate on that? What does that mean? Well, it is said that the Morehouse College Glee Club is the official singing organization of the college. So as a result, the glee club has to sing music that's appropriate for any occasion on the campus. All of our campus convocations we've been able to sing for. We have sung with the Atlanta Symphony, so we have to sing, be able to sing music that would fit those kinds of arenas. We've sung 
for some absolutely wonderful church services from the cathedral in Washington, DC to small churches in rural Georgia, all with the same energy and the same enthusiasm. So to be able to sing this variety of music with people who, some of them come to me with wonderful experience, having sung in their choirs, having perhaps performed all over the country and all over the world. And then we have others who have come with their only singing experience being in the shower. <laughs> and the result, some of them can read music and know theory very well. Some of them don't know what a whole note is or even a half note or a quarter note. They just know that there's some stuff on a page. And to have them all come together help each other and create all these various kinds of music is what I mean by it's more than a notion. Uh, will you please share a few stories about students whose participation in the Glee Club or your classes made a profound impact on their lives? Well, there have been, I'm also the teacher of choral conducting here at Morehouse. And so I have many conducting students who have gone on. My most recent student has finished Morehouse and is working on a master's while also conducting at a school in, in Georgia. Another young man who finished as a choral conducting major is the conductor of a middle school, wonderful, vibrant middle school program in Cleveland. And so it's always good to see them doing this. We have voice students who have left the Glee Club, gone on to finish master's and doctoral degrees. One very happy moment that we just found out this year is one of our majors uh, who sang in the Glee Club and was a soloist with the Glee Club, Brian Major, just made his Metropolitan Opera debut in a small role this year. Some of them have gone on, as you said, to sing on Broadway. We had one student who finished Morehouse some years ago and he ended up being in The Lion King and in other Broadway shows. Some have gone on to be educators. One of our educators in St. Louis became Educator of the Year. It's just absolutely wonderful to see what they will become afterward. In addition to that, the guys in the Glee Club are not all music majors. In fact, most aren't. And the result is they get to see how to run an organization. They learn things about leadership. They have to do their offices. They, they, those, whoever's the wardrobe manager has to handle that area. Whoever is the librarian has to make sure that's done. And to see them go out and become leaders in their communities. Uh, one young man is a lawyer and who is now a judge actually. Uh, as a result of, and he often refers to an office that he had to hold in the Glee Club to help understand that he had to hold himself accountable for what he does before he could hold anybody else accountable. Just small things like that in learning how to be a team player in, and create this beautiful music and harmony and try to add some harmony uh, in terms of their own lives and how they interact with each other has been very heartwarming for me to see. Oh, that's beautiful. So the Morehouse Glee Club is known internationally 
as well as nationally. In what ways is the Morehouse College Glee Club integral to the Atlanta community? Mm. We have a lot of connections in various ways. I mentioned, for example, our association with the Atlanta Symphony, which has been since Robert Shaw's first years there. He and Dr. Wendell Whalen were very good friends. And we have had a tradition of singing with them in one way or the other, most consistently with the Christmas. It was called Christmas with Robert Shaw and uh, Christmas with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra going forward from that. We've done that consistently since the 60s, 1960s. So we have that audience base. We sing certainly for various services and churches around the city when we can. I think people forget that these are students. And so I have to keep them in class longer than they are in concert. <laughs> but they we try to to do that as well. We have tried to maintain some connection with our schools as well to try to sing at a school or invite schools to come hear a concert at Morehouse College to try to keep that kind of community going. There are many ways that we try to infuse ourselves in our environment and in our community to spread some joy in music and show them some good things that these young people are doing I think of a one thing that we came up with. This is when I was assistant director under Dr. Wendell Whalem. He went to Hampton, Georgia to sing, to observe rather, people who were singing shape notes. And these were in, this is, in, this is Black communities in rural Georgia at, at the time. And he would come back with wonderful ideas. He'd jot down things that he heard that were new. He'd make arrangements and try to have us sing some of those things. And I told him, I said, why don't we, why don't we go there instead? And it's just you going, why don't you take the whole Glee Club so they can learn how to make these sounds, how this music sounds, how it comes from the folk tradition to the written tradition. We had been doing that consistently as well. So all of those things help us to, you know, from, from the biggest stages to the smallest stages to try to show ourselves as, as people who are, are in the community and, and connecting Morehouse just beyond the borders of, this, of the school walls. Professor David Morrow, the Academic Program Director for Music, Theater, and Performance at Morehouse College and conductor of the storied Morehouse College Glee Club. You can find more information about our series, The Art of Teaching, on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear about the Atlanta Opera's production of Mozart's Don Giovanni, coming soon to the Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE.
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Mozart's famous opera, Don Giovanni, follows the exploits of a scandalous character who leaves a trail of destruction in his wake. The story is reinterpreted in a new production by the Atlanta Opera in the style of film noir. The opera will be on stage at the Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center from January 21st through January 29th. Director Christine McIntyre joins me now via Zoom to tell us more about her take on the classic. Christine McIntyre, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Would you please summarize the story of Mozart's Don Juan, his Don Giovanni, and tell us about the infamous behavior of its title character? Sure. So when we first meet Don Giovanni, he is in process of attacking Donna Anna, a noblewoman, who actually lives quite close to him. He's essentially at home, so it's quite shocking. He escapes by killing her father in the street in front of her house. So the opera starts very violently, and we're sort of right in it uh, with him. What seems to be the next morning, he and his servant or compatriot Leporello are talking and suddenly encounter what immediately appears to be an unknown woman, but turns out to be one of Don Giovanni's former lovers, Donna Elvira, who yells at him for having abandoned her. And then in very short order, Don Giovanni sets about attempting to seduce a young bride. It's unclear whether Zerlina is just married or just about to be married. So in, in short succession, we see him with three different women, and Act One culminates at a party at his house where Donna Anna and Donna Elvira come to unmask him, essentially, and let the world know exactly what he's been up to, and he makes a very narrow escape. In Act Two, the Don disappears for quite some time. Uh, the second act starts with a wonderful trio where he convinces Leporello to seduce Donna Elvira in disguise as him, while Don Giovanni tries his luck with yet another woman. Mm-hmm. 
see the Don encounter the statue of the man he has killed in a graveyard, and the statue appears to agree to come to dinner, a very weird and unearthly occurrence. And then the opera finishes back in Giovanni's ballroom in this production, it's actually his nightclub, where the, the spirit or the statue of the commendatore, the man whom he killed back in the first act, comes to get him, and Giovanni meets his, his end. So he is a very challenging character to put on the opera stage. And indeed, Don Giovanni is a challenge to modern audiences in terms of this story, as well as its classification. There's murder. Is it tragic or comic opera? Well, Mozart and De Ponte, the librettist, labeled it a, a drama giocoso, and it's unclear exactly what they meant by that. But certainly in our modern times, and especially in the wake of the Me Too movement, this is a very challenging opera to wrap one's head around. We can't go through the entire opera hating Giovanni. It makes for a very long evening in the theater. <laughs> and... This production of mine actually predates that movement. I actually did an early version of the, this idea in 2013, but this production dates from 2015. And it occurred to me that one thing we're very good at in America, and especially in American cinema, is antiheroes, and specifically the antiheroes of film noir. And I thought if we could look at Giovanni through that lens, maybe that gave American audiences a way in. It lets us off the hook in a way. We know he's going to get it in the end. We know that there are dark elements of his past and that a good noir film always ends with the antihero bleeding out. So, you know, we can sit back and enjoy the ride. And in fact, we are fascinated with men like this. And that seemed to be a pretty good take on a challenging piece. Well, I think it is a fascinating approach on your part. Would you explain a bit more about how your production relates to film noir? I know you've set the opera in Kansas City in 1953. Why there and why 1953 in particular? Well, the 1953 puts it, and that's a, a something of an approximation, but the classic American noir period is 1940 to 1960. Those are the films that we really think of when we think of film noir. It is possible to make a noir film in, that is a Western or a sci-fi drama. It is also possible to make noir in color. But most of us think of films like Out of the Past or Double Indemnity, right? So those films are the 1940s and the 1950s. So we knew we wanted to, to locate the production then. I was not intending to set the production in Kansas City, but my original scenic designer, Keith Brumley, is from Kansas City. And indeed, Lyric Opera of Kansas City was the company that built the production. And I think Keith always just sort of thought of it in those terms. And there was this wonderful day where I went into the scenic shop and he was painting the backdrop that hangs at the back of the production, a wonderful kind of noir cityscape with a water tower on top of one of the buildings. And then I went outside and I realized that that same water tower was on a building across the street. <laughs> I don't even know that Keith really realizes that he set the production in Kansas City. I think it was just such an, a natural thing for him. And there is, in fact, a wonderful noir film called Kansas City Confidential. So it, it it's all seems to work. The way that we've turned Don Giovanni into noir is to sort of reimagine it set in an American city in the 1950s. The entire production is black and white, all the costumes, the scenery. And we light it very much like noir. So visually, 
it will look like those films to, to many people. In terms of the characters then, Giovanni becomes the classic noir anti-hero. He wears a rumpled tux and a fedora and an overcoat and he smokes and he drinks and he seems to be above the law and outside of society in fascinating ways. Questo non piccio libro è tutto pieno dei nomi di sue belle, ogni villa, ogni borgo, ogni paese, e testimoni di sue donne imprese. Madamina, il catalogo è questo, delle belle chiamò il padron mio, un catalogo gli che ho fatto io, osservate. Leggete con me, osservate, leggete con me. Donna Elvira then becomes the femme fatale. Every great noir film has a great femme fatale. Think of women like Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity. And so we've dressed Elvira in a wonderful white suit. And she too drinks and smokes and she gets the gun in her hands at one point. Uh, and she makes a great foil for him. And then all of the other characters sort of fall into line. In noir, there's often a young couple in peril. Usually the the, the woman in that young couple runs into the, the anti-hero in some way, and you all want to scream, don't get involved with him. And she often makes a careful escape at the end. And so that's Zerlina, the, the young woman, and Mazzetto, her compatriot. And then there's Donna Anna, whose father is murdered in the streets at the beginning. Many times in noir, there is a horror or a gothic element, some, somebody who never quite recovers from the experience. And you also get the sense of dark, otherworldly forces at work. Noir has its origins in German expressionism, and, and there's a little bit of the gothic horror kind of element to it, too. And so in this production, the commendatore haunts Giovanni like a ghost until he hounds him to his ending. Have you worked with the singer's who will perform in Atlanta Opera's production. I have worked with a few of them, but not all of them. So it's always very exciting to me to discover new, wonderful singers with whom to work and to bring into the production. None of these singers have done this production before, and so they will be discovering it much as the audience will. Oh, wow. You've directed more than 100 operas, and your focus generally has been um, much more recent writers and composers. But the number of operas from the standard repertoire you've directed is nothing to sneeze at either, Christine. <laughs> I mean, it, what a huge repertoire you have. How does your breadth of experience working with contemporary operas influence your approach to producing the classics? I am originally a theater director turned opera director because I love music and always wanted to tell stories to music. I am also a film lover and the visual arts and film influence all of my work, be it older operas or the contemporary operas that I focused on most recently. I love contemporary opera because I love telling new stories and I love telling the stories of who the audience is now. This production is a great example of how I can combine all of those things. My love of film and the visual arts, 
my knowledge of contemporary American culture and desire to make stories relevant to the audience who's actually coming to see it. And obviously, a long career directing more traditional works, this concept lets me bring all of that together and see if I can reimagine a classic work that I think is still worth doing, worth reexamining, has something to say, has wonderful music in, you know, an American way and through an American more contemporary lens that I think will make it wonderfully entertaining. You know, we forget that all of these pieces, all of these classic canonical operas were once as new and exciting as any of the world premieres that we're doing today. You know, to Mozart's audience, they were discovering something completely fresh and that seemed completely relevant to their time. And I think my job as a director is to do that for our audience. And I look forward to doing it for the audience in Atlanta. Hmm. Don Giovanni, as written by Mozart, is in Italian. I read you once directed a Spanish-English adaptation of The Barber of Seville. Did you ever consider this for Don Giovanni? No, what? The Bilingual Barber is actually a school show version, community opera version. So it's a shortened version of The, the Barber of Seville that we take around to, to schools and community centers and, and do in wonderful ways. And I was commissioned to do that by the Portland Opera. I will say that if somebody wanted to commission me to rethink Giovanni in that way, I would be more than happy to do it. <laughs> I'm fortunate. I speak Italian. My grandparents were Italian. I grew up speaking it at home. So for me, the language is, is wonderful and very immediate. And I wish that the language were that immediate for all of the audience, that everybody had that facility with it. Super titles are wonderful, but you know, there's nothing better, I think, than hearing opera in a language that you immediately understand. Though I hope that the, the film noir concept goes a long way toward making this feel very American and very familiar to everybody. Indeed. I think particularly for people who are newcomers to opera, to have a drama such as Don Giovanni or Barbara of Seville set in those instances, Spain, a different country, but in Italian and in Mozart's case by an Austrian who spoke German, it can be a bit mind-boggling or throw you off. But what you say about the music of the language itself certainly has to do with how the opera was conceived. Absolutely. Although, you know, there are many classic operas that exist in multiple languages too. And when Mozart was finally given the chance to compose for his own contemporary audience, you think of the magic flute, you know, which is in German because he wanted people to understand it in that way. I actually think Mozart would be a great advocate for opera in you know, contemporary languages that that, that audiences can easily understand. I think he was a very adaptable and wonderful composer. But, you know, for me, doing Don Giovanni in Italian feels a little bit like mother's milk. I, I <laughs> totally adore it. I love wrapping my, my mouth around the language of it. So, Oh, absolutely. And I love your point about Mozart. I think part of what makes his opera so great is the fact that he values 
the theatrical aspect of them. He, he had gifted librettists and didn't want silly plots. No, indeed. And even Giovanni is perhaps the most challenging character-wise of his three operas with Lorenzo de Ponte. But they all, all of those three operas, have fascinating and well-drawn characters and music that is very much from the heart and specifically great female characters that I love delving into. And I think one of the great things that this noir concept does is it allows me to really separate out the women and not treat them just as yet one more victim of Don Giovanni and delve into their characters in a way that the music really backs up and allows me to do. Director Christine McIntyre. The Atlanta Opera's new production of Don Giovanni is on stage at the Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center from January 21st through the 29th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, our Speaking of Comedy Today with comedian Joe Smith, amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Time now for our series, Speaking of Comedy where local comedians share their inspiration and stories from the small stage. My name is Joe Smith, and I'm an Atlanta-based stand-up comic. I was already in my 40s when I started doing stand-up, so I used to tell myself that I was trying to prevent a midlife crisis by doing it. But really, stand-up just was the midlife crisis that I happened to fall in love with. And it appealed to me for all the same reasons it appeals to everyone else who does it. You can make sense and fun of this ridiculous world we live in. It's a great avenue for validation and solving insecurity. (laughs) Please like me, listen to my words. But perhaps most important, what I wanted out of it was to be among a community of like-minded people. Not people who thought like me, but people with similar sensibilities of trying to challenge uh, and make each other laugh thinking about the world differently. My first biggest challenge in stand-up comedy was getting comfortable talking about myself on stage in front of a bunch of strangers. It involves self-acceptance, am I worth it, are people going to care what I have to say? And getting comfortable doing that was a big challenge. The only other challenges that I perceive are of my own making. Do I have enough balance with my family? Do I have enough money? Do I have a day job? Do I not have a day job? Can I quit my day job? All that stuff I feel is, is... within my control. The rest of it is probably like any other job. How much nonsense am I willing to put up with to get what I want? And do I stick with it? I'm trying to say the funniest, truest thing to challenge the conventional wisdom or popular narrative. So to highlight hypocrisy, but by making fun of it first. It has to be funny first. You can be smart and clever and commentary, but if it's not funny, no one cares. That probably sounds way more pretentious than I meant it, but I just want to make fun of the big things that everyone loves. 
<laughs> it's the best way to say it. There's a relatively new beer now called a Night on Ponce IPA, named after our famous road. Uh, and I had one, and I gotta tell you, it tastes like chlamydia and getting arrested. <laughs> yeah, like cold Popeye's chicken and regret. A night on ponds. You know what normally pairs well with a night on ponds? A morning at Grady Hospital. Followed by an afternoon at Fulton County Jail. Like, it's a rough brand, especially when you consider Sweetwater, right? Which has that hippie vibe, like, hey, shoot the hooch and sandals. Night on ponds is like, shoot heroin. <laughs> Barefoot. Like, shoot someone at a grocery store and we'll call it Murder Kroger. What's next? Cheshire Bridge Stout? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> the story of the joke is pretty straightforward. They named their product after Ponce de Leon, a majestic street <laughs> in Atlanta, Georgia. And I said it once as a one-liner, and it connected immediately, and I realized I was not the only person that thought that might be an interesting name for a beer. I would like to say, though, that the makers of the beer, Three Taverns in Decatur, they have been so sweet. They've seen the clip, they've heard the joke, and they have a great sense of humor about it, and have offered me uh, free beer anytime I go in there. So I'm off to Decatur this afternoon. Atlanta is a great place to be a stand-up because of its true diversity across demographic factors, age, race, sex, gender, all these things, but also culturally. Inside the city, you have hipster rooms, you have hood rooms, you have grown folks rooms, you outside the city, you have redneck rooms, all sorts of different types of people talking on stage is going to inform your perspective and how you talk about things, but also it's going to give you wonderful exposure performing to a variety of different audiences who are not like you, but who are just as important as you. That's what I like about it. I always feel like the crowd is involved because to me, stand-up's a bit of a dialogue. I'm going to say this, and you're going to respond with your laughter. I'm going to say that, and you're going to hopefully respond with your laughter. I, generally speaking, want to tell my jokes, say what I have to say, and move on. But I do like doing crowd work, talking to the crowd, making fun of spontaneous moments. Uh, but it is a bit like eating junk food. It's really, really kind of fun and enjoyable, but it doesn't get you much further in the long run. I have two standing gigs. Every Tuesday, I host the Comedy Night at Limerick Junction in Virginia Highland. That show starts at 9 p.m. And every Wednesday, I host the open mic at the Laughing Skull Lounge in Midtown, and that show starts at 8 p.m. I also have a popular comedy podcast called Getting My Act Together. (laughs) And I'm on Instagram and everything else. Comedian Joe Smith. And our series, Speaking of Comedy. More information about Smith, as well as our entire Speaking of series, is available on wabe.org slash speaking of. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. 
tomorrow at 11 a.m., music legends Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr. stop by ahead of their performance at the Rialto Center for the Arts. Plus, the restaurateurs behind Decatur's Kimball House celebrate their purchase of the 136-year-old train depot that houses their award-winning eatery. If you missed part of today's show, like our earlier series premiere of The Art of Teaching, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. WABE. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen at wabe.org or wherever you find your podcasts.